0: It's time for the Bible Geek. I am that geek. Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, postmodern, deconstruct superpowered demigod. I, I am that geek. Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, postmodern, postmodern. I am that geek. Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price. Rock sure was young and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, etc. etc. Super powered demigod. Hi, this is the Apostle Paul, and you're listening to the Bible Geek with Robert M. Price. Uh thanks Paul. It's uh time to get into some questions here and so let's do it. Uh this is one from what oh is a long one. Uh from Jason Quackenbush. Uh this uh, looks mighty interesting. I says I'm reading I'm currently reading the amazing colossal apostle and enjoying it thoroughly while reading your commentary on 1 Corinthians I noticed something I had not previously which is Paul's claim that he will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost 1 Corinthians 16:8 newly awake to the catholicizing tendency you trace in the letter's redaction which, now that it's been pointed out to me, seems gobsmackingly obvious, it struck me that this seems both out of character and anachronistic for the supposed author. My hypothesis is that the phrase is a sly interpolation to give an example of Paul vouching for the apostolic lineage of the Great Commission, which is otherwise irrelevant to him since he got his apostolic mantle direct from the risen horse's mouth— Wilbur, take the gospel to. Them. I'm sorry. Uh, here's my thinking. Uh, Pentecost's original purpose is to celebrate the giving of the law to Moses and was celebrated by Jews. As such, it isn't a natural part of the liturgical year for Paul's Gentile congregations, and since he's so bent on downplaying the law for them, it would be bizarre for his Christ cult, to borrow Burton Mack's term, to borrow this festival. However, Pentecost was borrowed by Luke, or the author of Acts, right, to replace the original law-giving moment on Sinai to a single nation of Hebrews with the great commission of the Catholic apostles to transmit the Evangelion, the gospel, to every nation. The mythic parallels there seem so obvious that I won't prattle on with the recitation, but please do correct me if I'm reading that wrong given that this is the case the fact that by the second century we must have some congregations celebrating pentecost as part of their own apostolic inheritance while others would clearly have no reason to celebrate it and possibly no familiarity with the holiday at all uh, is a possible that is a possible serious problem for everybody's claim to apostolic lineage My hypothesis is you end up with some folks, Pauline Christians, Marcionites, Desert Fathers, Gnostics, Max, Christ cultists, what have you, looking at other Jesus movements and saying, what are you doing celebrating the Torah's delivery to Moses like a bunch of Jerusalem priests? That's done now. We're on to this other thing. But there's no way the Catholic and culturally more Jewish groups are going to give it up because it's built into their cultural identity at this point. So we get this compromise in Acts to get the skeptics on board. Here's this quote from Paul in the middle of his Jerusalem telethon talking as if his reference to Pentecost were like telling a group of Americans, I'll be in D.C. until the 4th of July. I doubt we'll get a recess before then. And if Paul celebrates it, then it has to be kosher for whoever this group is who is looking askance at this celebration. This, of course forgetting that for a bunch of cultural Hellenists and Romans in Corinth who converted within the last decade, a reference to Pentecost would have all the meaning and importance of a reference to Chinese New Year celebrations to an Irish Catholic townie in South Boston. He might know something happens in Chinatown on that day, but it's not going to be anything he sets his calendar by, hence the anachronistic... I'm sorry hence the anachronism. What do you think is this a good reading here? Uh that is really fascinating. Yeah, why I mean this, you know, this is of a piece with the book of Acts telling us that Paul uh wanted to get to Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. Why would he mention that unless he's trying to propagate this idea that, oh, Paul remained a good, faithful, Torah-obedient Jew, which seems so artificial, and is that what we've got here, too? It sounds like it. I mean, it certainly fits the Acts uh, stereotype that Paul was dependent upon the Twelve, uh, and he learned from them and all that. I mean, First Corinthians 15 certainly has that. Right. He received the stuff about the resurrection from them, and he passed it on, and all that stuff, which is just the diametrical opposite of, of um, Galatians, right? So I, I think you, that's an excellent uh, reading. Uh, you're really in the higher critical uh, spirit here. Bravo. Uh, going on, one other short question. I understand in Acts 21:38, where the Revised Standard Version and all the other translations I've checked read "assassins," the word is actually "sakarii" in the Greek text. Given the Ismaili origins of the actual historical assassins, the Hashishim sect, from which the the English word "assassin" is derived as well as the fact that it's kind of anachronistic, would you say this is a poor translation? Seems to me that with a specific thing like the Sicarii operating in the lead-up to the Jewish wars, the translation would be better off just transliterating the Greek and giving it a footnote explaining it, rather than going with assassin. Minor thing, really, but was wondering uh, what your thoughts are. Uh, Yeah, I, uh, I think that is the best thing to do um it's kind of important it's at least it's worth knowing who the sicarii were especially in view of the distinct possibility that Judas Iscariot uh marks him as one of the sicarii a sicarius was a roman short sword kind of like a big dagger and uh the uh the sicarii were uh Jewish revolutionists who would sneak up to uh Herodian officials etc in a crowd stab them uh, whip out the sword uh, and and stab them and then uh, uh melt away in the crowd and uh, hence assassins right so uh, it it I think it would be a good idea to have that I mean after all we We don't translate the Pharisees or something. I mean, we we just uh, tell people what it means, and I think that would be a better idea. Good thinking, Jason. Uh, Let's see. Leave it to an Argonaut. Uh, Victor Deaton says... I'm writing to ask if you would happen to know about a book titled The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross by John Allegro. A friend of mine is into it, and it just sounds absurd to say the least. There's YouTube videos about it, etc. However, I haven't found any full-on refutations of it. Um, Let me pause there before the uh, second half... Uh, Yeah, this is a fascinating book and a fascinating hypothesis. Uh, Allegro certainly was a a very, very erudite scholar. I had the pleasure of meeting him once and getting him to autograph a copy of uh, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. But uh, at any rate, um, this book is abhorrent to almost everybody. Uh, because it's uh, a variant of the Christ myth theory, he understands early Christianity to have been a mushroom cult. Sort of hate to put it that way because that's almost designed to make it sound uh, crazy. But um, his the book is is uh, very fascinating. Uh, people ought to read it. Uh, what he's the way I boil this thing down is that he's in effect saying that Christianity was kind of like Vedic Hinduism because their big sacrament. Uh, this is pre-Upanishadic, uh, pre-Buddhist uh, Hinduism. They they are. Uh, were polytheistic, and they had sacrifices uh, to the various gods, and the big sacrament, as I say, was uh, Soma, and uh, S-O-M-A, and that um, seems to have been, from the descriptions of it and the uh, the botanical options, uh, to have been a reference to the Amanita Muscaria uh, mushroom, the red cap with the white uh, spots on it, and so on, because that's a, a powerful hallucinogen. Uh, because there, the Rig Veda has these references to the mortar and pestle uh, pounding out the juice of soma into the cup, uh, and they would dilute it uh, to give to some of the congregants, though the priests would drink it straight, in fact, the way they diluted it, oh boy, uh, was that the priests would urinate it out later and uh, for the people to drink. And, oh boy. But there, there is this beautiful hymn to Soma in the Rig Veda about the exaltation of the priest who drinks the Soma. It's really terrific, uh, beautiful uh, hymn, or poem, whatever. And... Uh, there, these um, people believe that the god Soma, who was also the moon god, uh, was incarnate in the soma plant, and basically, what uh, Allegro is saying, I think, is that that's what early Christianity was. Now, this is uh, of interest to a lot of people because of this theory that. Uh, all religion began with entheogens, that is, uh, uh, substances, drugs, whatever you want to call it, that would make the the taker seem to be infused with the divine, Uh, and uh, uh, that's not an unreasonable theory in my opinion. Uh, but neither is the belief in flying saucers and that aliens have visited the Earth. I don't uh, think that's ridiculous. I don't think you've got to be a nut to think that. Uh, there are plenty of nuts that do, but that doesn't uh, disqualify it. But the thing is, is there enough evidence for it? Uh, that's the uh, the question. Not an absurdity, but is there enough evidence? Reincarnation. I'm kind of close to thinking that's an absurdity, and that I'm it get it to me. It seems to run into such conceptual difficulties. I'm not sure what we're talking about exactly, but but I'm I'm open to it. It's just is there sufficient evidence for it? Well, in the same way here, I, I've read books where people have tried to see. Um, Oh, the manna in the desert and the pillar of fire and all of that as a result of uh, people uh, of the ancient Israelites uh, using uh, hallucinogens and so forth. But uh, to me, it's there's just no convincing argument for that. There's no real evidence. Could be true, not stupid, but uh, I just uh, seems kind of flimsy to me. And the same, I mean, if it's true, and it might be unfortunately, there is insufficient evidence left for us to know about it. And um, so that that's kind of the view I take of it, though I do think the, the book is filled with fascinating information, and uh, I uh, view uh, John Allegro with respect. I don't think he's some sort of a kook. Uh, and um, I remember, th- I think the first I ever heard of this book was in a... Um, Comparative Religion book, I forget what the heck it was called. Uh, that was in the title, but not the whole title, Comparative Religion, by J.N.D. Anderson, a lawyer and a Christian apologist who also wrote The Evidence for the Resurrection and uh, uh, Christianity, the Witness of History, and A Lawyer Among the Theologians, and a number of books. I, I met him too, once, oddly enough. Um. Uh, He mentions the sacred mushroom of the cross and just dismisses it as nonsense, and his evidence, if he can call it that, is that uh, I think in the Times of London, shortly after the book came out, there was uh, an open letter published by a whole bunch of philologists saying that uh, this book is just fantasy. There's no real philology in it because that is a major portion of the book. It, it tries to go from, it tries to to uh, zero in on the terms we have in Greek and I guess Hebrew. I forget now. Uh, for their plants and trying to figure out if any of them actually are references to hallucinogens and so on. And um, I often cite uh, a, a f- what I think is an inspired piece of speculation by Allegro on the meaning of balanergase. I've done that again here recently, that it doesn't mean sons of thunder. I mean, any Greek uh, reader could tell you that, but that it looks like a pretty good candidate for a simple Greek transliteration of an old Sumerian word meaning upholder of the vault of heaven which fits in with the Castor and Pollux mythology associations of James and John but so I uh, I don't think he's a nut I don't think the theory is uh, kooky I just don't really see enough evidence to espouse it. Such things have happened, uh, but that doesn't prove it did in in this case. But you ought to read it. It's uh, pretty interesting. Okay, uh, then Victor goes on. By the way, have you ever heard of this book about Jesus traveling to India, or that Jesus was really a Hindu or a Buddhist, that Jesus was called Krishna, etc.? That's another one that makes the rounds on the internet, YouTube, etc. I just can't imagine first century Palestinian Jews calling anybody Krishna, especially Jesus. Also, if Jesus was a Hindu, why doesn't he ever quote the Vedas? He's quoting the Old Testament all the time. Well, you know, uh, if you, once again, if you had reason to believe that Jesus had been to India and Tibet and so forth, and that he was a kind of a Buddhist or Hindu or something, you could well imagine he wouldn't be quoting as authoritative scripture Jews books they had never heard of and that had no claim on their uh, belief or loyalty. He would have to try to get his ideas uh, in uh, Old Testament terms. So that isn't that odd, but I kind of think it's groundless. I have read some of these books. There there are a few of them out there, I'm sure you know. And uh, I guess was made the most famous by uh, two non-scholarly books, Uh, one was Nicholas Notovich, uh, The Unknown Life of Jesus Christ, which still gets reprinted, this came out over a hundred years ago, where he claimed to have found a, a Tibetan life story of Jesus when he was laid up with a broken leg in a Tibetan monastery, turned out that was just a hoax. Uh, but a lot of people still buy it. Uh, And the other one, uh, Levi Dowling's The Aquarian Gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I've written a whole commentary on this, uh, and uh, a fascinating book, but this one claims to be a revelation from the Akashic Records and so forth. Uh, It's really a kind of a harmony of the Gospels with all kinds of other stuff thrown in. It's kind of interesting. Uh, But um, neither of these is a genuine ancient source. What is um, relevant about this is the theories of Christian Lindner, a Danish scholar who has pointed out several astonishing parallels between Buddhist uh, texts and legends and uh, Christian ones. Uh, J. Duncan M. Derrett, a late great human encyclopedia of a man he he noticed that there were a bunch of Buddhist and Christian parallels and uh, he, he made a case that borrowing was in both directions I mean th- it's not like we're talking about Jesus going to Mars or something there certainly was active trade between uh, the Middle East and the Far East uh, we know that there had been for a long time Alexander the Great paved the way for that if not people before him uh, so it's it's by no means unlikely, like the the Simeon thing in the Gospel of Luke, where he says, "Now I can depart in peace; I've seen the promised Messiah, and so forth." That seems to be based on the Buddhist story of the sage Asita, who is brought to the cradle of the infant Buddha and weeps and says, if only I could live long enough to see the enlightened one and so on. The story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well and asking her for a drink is, I can't do that. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Uh, They don't even use dishes in common. That certainly has to be based on the Buddhist story of the uh, disciple Ananda meeting uh, a member, uh, a woman who was a member of, I don't know, what was it, a shudra or some other caste that uh, Ananda didn't belong to. He asks her for a drink. She says, I can't uh, help you. We're members of two different castes. And he says, look, uh, lady, I didn't ask what caste you belong to. I just asked you for a drink of water. Uh, That, certainly, that's based on the Buddhist version. But there are other ones even more striking that uh, Lintner has pointed out and that uh, Michael Lockwood has compiled uh, in a couple of anthologies of Buddhist and Christian works. And uh, beyond, I mean, that's enough to make me think that Lintner may well be right, that there really is something to the old theories That the Essenes or Jewish monks, whatever you want to call them were uh, a deposit from Buddhist missionaries to the West in pre-Christian times I mean we know there were such Uh, uh, King Ashoka had sent uh, missionaries out to Syria and so forth well that uh, monasticism which didn't seem to exist in Judaism before suddenly flowers and Uh, and uh, that uh, early Christianity comes out of that, that it was a kind of a crypto-Buddhism with names changed, though not much. And Lintner shows how uh, Simon Peter fills the same an analogous role as the Buddhist disciple Sariputra. Uh, And uh, there are various other ones. Now, all of this I follow with great interest, But then he goes further into a kind of gematria and uh, says that there is a specific number of letters, of syllables, etc. in some of these words that can't be a coincidence that if you understand what's going on, there are various Buddhist references in here. Now, to me, the alarm bell goes off there because I think, well, that's very liable to be fanciful. Uh, like some of the cabalistic exegesis. But on the other hand, the ancients were big into code and numerology and all that, so I confess I do not uh, know what to make of that. It it may well be so. He certainly knows infinitely more about it than I do. But this is well worth pursuing. Uh, is early Christianity perhaps, well, not not only influenced by, but based on a kind of second-hand Buddhism. Uh, I don't know, but again, this one strikes me as not uh, at all far-fetched. Let's see. Okay, so you got your reading assignment, Victor. Uh, This is from Miroslav, uh, I don't know, I just have initials here. Corny, I think it is. Anyway, says I accept the documentary hypothesis, you know, J E D P, uh, and it's no doubt a fact. What was the point of mixing all these doublets of, you know, two versions of the same story? Um, like the three versions of the patriarch and his wife going into a foreign land. The patriarch, either Abraham, Abram, or Isaac, lies about his wife being his sister because he's pretty sure the king is going to want to Conscript her into his harem, and uh, he doesn't want the king to think he has to kill the patriarch to get a hold of her, and so on. Same plot. Uh, why are the three different versions in there, or two different versions of the Hagar and Ishmael thing, two different versions of Abraham's making a covenant with God, and so on? Um, okay, um, for ev- for every doublet, wouldn't the group? Uh, Attached to the second one, be angry or disappointed that everybody was reading the first doublet first. Given there were no chapters or other markers, doesn't being second mean your view would rarely get read? Would Coke ever run ads straight after Pepsi? It just doesn't seem to make any practical sense. Well, I think that uh, about as much as they could do, and I do think you're right about the, the motive of redactors, including the various versions, because they knew each one had its own readers. Uh, and uh, people were familiar with it, they didn't uh, want to read what was now supposed to be an ecumenical scripture and find, uh, hey, where's my version of this? Right, And so that's why they put them all in, uh, usually with uh, some territory separating them. But I think that's about all they could do. Uh, something had to come first. But something you've mentioned mitigates the problem a bit. Since there wasn't um, any kind of uh, numbering system and we have to assume people would not have read or hear read to them a whole book like Genesis read at a single sitting, I don't think the problem would necessarily arise. Sooner or later they would hear it. Uh, And uh, so I I don't know that this would really have been a problem. Uh, And... uh, the what you're saying might have been more of a problem if you're talking about somebody reading it like uh, picking up a novel. Uh, so that's what I would guess. Uh, Reuven says, uh, my question concerns a recent lecture by a rabbi I was listening to. The title of the lecture was Levels of the Spirit, Torah of Abraham, Torah of Shem and Aver. Abaar, a you know, the origin of Hebrew. The rabbi mentioned briefly the view that Nimrod and the people behind the Tower of Babel were intending to construct a counter Jerusalem or evil Jerusalem to use comic book terminology, a, a reverse Jerusalem. Whereas Jerusalem and its holy tower and city brought only holiness and connection to God. This reversed Jerusalem and its tower brought only corruption and a severance of that connection to God. This immediately reminded me of the two towers of Tolkien, and whether or not he could have been alluding to this allegorically. Tolkien obviously referring to, to this, right? Uh, What are your thoughts on this view of the reverse Jerusalem and also on the Lord of the Rings allegory? Well, on the Lord of the Rings, people have long debated whether Tolkien had any religious allegory in mind, and a lot of people figured he didn't. Uh, I think part of that was that Tolkien was also asked if he was uh, trying to make reference, allegorical reference, to... Uh, The uh, hydrogen bomb was the ring supposed to stand for that extremely powerful and too powerful for uh, to depend on human beings to be able to wield responsibly. And he said, no, it had nothing to do with that. But uh, in his lectures, he did admit he was uh, he was smuggling. Uh, Catholic doctrine in there. Now, I, I don't know, I, I've not read the lecture, so I don't know what specifically he had in mind, but of course you have to assume that Gandalf, who dies and rises from the dead, is supposed to be Jesus. You know, it doesn't take a genius to figure that one out. Um, but I kind of doubt he's thinking uh, of this. I don't think that in the Bible, Jerusalem is mentioned with a tower prominently enough to make you think of uh the other tower the tower of babel but there is a similar sort of a parallel right because uh at least with old and new testaments because pentecost is supposed to be it seems like a reversal of the scattering of human language at babel and uh, so there's a parallel and um oh uh, let's that's not dissimilar really it's the same sort of an idea though uh it doesn't really involve uh, a very high structure at Pentecost they're just in an upper room but um i I think more of augustine's city of God versus the city of man uh, and uh so i i kind of i i guess it's a question of whether you want to draw attention to these two bits of the Bible and make your own contrast, which is pretty good. I mean, what you say the rabbi said sounds pretty good, but if you're saying was this the intent of the writer or compiler uh, of uh, Genesis... I don't think the case is strong enough to to be sure of that, though it could be. It it would make some sense. Likewise, I doubt that uh, Tolkien had this contrast in mind with the two towers. Uh, But again, who knows? Interesting. Another question from Reuven. Uh, has to do with the names of David's sons, which seem kind of ironic here. David's first son is named Amnon, meaning faithful, which he was not. He was a drunkard and raped his half-sister. David's third son, Absalom, meaning father of peace, rebels against David. And big time, right? Warfare and all that. Uh, David's fourth son, Adonijah, meaning my lord is Yah, uh, goes against the court prophet Nathan and tries to get himself crowned king. Uh, What are your thoughts on this? Uh, Let's see. I hesitate on this as well. The Amnon thing does seem to be quite ironic. In other words, you would name people names like this as a kind of an expression of hope or promise and that like the Confucianists say you would have the rectification of names uh, and uh, people would grow into the name and and that uh, this grossly didn't happen so you know what a shame and so forth. Um, Absalom, father of peace you know I, I don't think that was the original denotation I think that it means uh that uh, shalman is my father the the sunset god of jerusalem uh, i think it's it's reinterpreted to make david look like a uh, monotheist and uh so i don't think that one really is uh, involved there though it's possible that since the deuteronomic historian would uh, have Interpreted Absalom as meaning father of peace rather than, sh- than Shalman is my father, that he sees the irony there. Uh, the other one, uh, uh, boy, I just lost the screen here. Adonijah, this isn't uh, necessarily. Uh, an irony since, uh, the Deuteronomic historian does like Nathan. That's for sure. Uh, regarded him as a true spokesman of Yahweh. That's, that's clear. But, um, He isn't depicted as uh, an apostate worshiping other gods and so on. Now, that would really be an ironic contrast. So, once again, it's difficult to assess the author or the editor's intent, but it seems to me it's a little tenuous. I I wouldn't feel that secure in saying, yeah, that's what's going on here. Then another one on our mini Reuven geek here uh, has to do with reincarnation in Judaism. Josephus reports in the name of the Pharisees that after death the righteous pass into other bodies, while the souls of the wicked will suffer eternal punishment. That's from Josephus, uh, the Jewish War, 2 8 14, and similarly the Antiquities, 8 14 through 15. What are your thoughts on this? Doesn't that sound like reincarnation, not resurrection? it does but uh i kind of go along with the suggestion that he's trying to dress up jewish religion to sound hellenistic as part of his cultural apologetic to defend judaism before gentile readers and uh to reinforce the commitment to their heritage of assimilated diaspora Jews, so that there's this bridge, if he can make it sound like Pythagoreanism in this case uh, the Essenes he makes sound like the Pythagoreans also the Pharisees he tends to make sound like the Stoics but uh, So it seems to me he might well mean, uh, that, uh, like a, it's sown a natural body, it's raised a, a spiritual body. I don't know how to make a decision on that. I've thought about that for many years. And we do know that uh, reincarnation was in the air. I think we can surmise that. Uh, there's not a whole lot of evidence, but in uh, John chapter 9, there's the famous passage where the disciples see a, a man known to have been born blind, he's begging, and the disciples decide to bring up a a question It's almost like uh, in Buddhism a question that tendeth not unto edification, so Jesus doesn't exactly answer it. But they say, uh, Master, who sinned with the result that this poor man was born blind? I mean, somebody must have. Uh, was it him? Or was it his parents, and Jesus sort of waves it away and says, well, neither one, as it happens. This guy was born blind to become an object lesson of the glory of God. Now watch this, and he heals him jesus does not say what what are you crazy how could he be born blind for something he did he didn't do anything what did he kick his mother in the womb too hard what are you talking about i mean he could have said that uh but um he he doesn't he uh doesn't disqualify that as an option it's just that it's not true in this case as he happens to know But doesn't that imply that, I mean, if there's any narrative plausibility there, if the writer could assume the reader wouldn't stop and say, what the hell is he talking about? Doesn't that kind of imply that the writer figured that uh, for Jews to believe in reincarnation was uh, a commonplace? Yeah, true, but on the other hand, the Gospel of John, uh, ha- all these stories are fictive. I mean, even if there was a historical Jesus, right? I'm not deducing the fictive character of any story from, from that assumption. It's not an assumption with me. It's a conclusion, right or wrong. Um, the, the the Gospel of John is is just theological allegory. And, of course, as such, it is brilliant and profound. Not knocking it, right? Um, but there's all kinds of stuff from all sorts of traditions. It is eye opening to read C.H. Dodd's great, great book, the interpretation of the fourth gospel chapter after chapter. He shows truckloads of astonishing parallels with Philo, with the Hermetica, uh, with, uh, Gnosticism, it's uh, with the Essenes, etc. It is astounding. Uh, It's an embarrassment of riches, and so it's hard to know whether the reincarnation reference fits in with, uh, denotes uh, the syncretistic milieu in which John's mind moved, uh, or if it's a apt description at that point of what Jews at the time of Jesus would have been thinking. So, tough to say, but we do know plainly, uh, a little later, reincarnation was widespread as a belief in Judaism. Uh, It was sort of like a belief in ghosts, in a way. If you died before you could settle your affairs, uh, God might send you back to eventually take care of everything uh, so exactly when that is explicitly attested I don't know uh, I, I seem to have rattling around in my head that in the 6th century we have some sort of cabalistic references to it but uh, I'm not sure I think there's earlier material than that so, uh, it, so Josephus really could be talking about reincarnation or resurrection it's really as far as I can tell uh, tough to, to be sure what a pain, isn't it, Um, oh, let's see, this is from Stephen in Chevy Chase, Maryland, boy, it's a good thing they didn't name it after that no-talent, uh, alleged comedian, um, Anyway, he says I was browsing a different site, I guess from from mine, I don't know, and noticed a passage in first 1 Corinthians one nineteen that caught my interest. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Uh, Paul Lind, King James Version. Where is this written? Uh, well, I do happen to know. Uh, it's uh a slightly inaccurate quote from Isaiah 29, verse 14. Uh, boy, I should have had my bookmark in this one. Uh, but it shouldn't be that tough to find. uh 29, 14. Ah, oh, darn it. Come on, page... Uh let's uh let's look at the whole section starting with verse 15. 14:15? No, no, yeah, okay, uh, starting with 13. And Adonai said, "Because this uh, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment of men learned by rote." Therefore, of course that comes up in Mark 7. Uh, Therefore, behold, I will again do marvelous things with this people, uh, wonderful and marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning shall be hid. Uh, that right? That's the one, yeah. Uh... Yeah, that's not all that close, but that's probably it. Uh, It's not absolutely clear, but I'd say close enough to to indicate that uh, that he's uh, getting it from there since there's nothing else in the canonical scriptures. Uh, Anyway, I don't know if there's... Now, this does appear as oh uh, no no I'm thinking of another passage there but I, I'm guessing that's close enough at, uh, to solve the mystery but let's go on uh, Stephen says it struck me as at least potentially Gnostic in that worldly knowledge is apparently being tossed out the window um, but maybe not since he says in verse 17 for Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words lest the cross of Christ should be of none effect What's he getting at here? Is is Paul's gospel purely experiential uh, and that uh, all converts could potentially have the same revelation that he experienced such that there can be no conversion through argumentation but only conversion following revelation? Uh, yeah, uh, Stephen, I think that is the point. But, of course, that's not an alternative to uh, the... Uh, uh the the likely interpretation intended in Isaiah 29 because it really need no mean no more that uh God is ahead of any wise human scheme you may think you can outwit him but you can't you're going to lose just like in Acts 2, I think, you know, the these enemies conspired to get rid of Jesus, but God had the last laugh. In fact, he manipulated them into doing what they did. Uh, I mean, so th- that's the idea, that you think you're so smart, or the Quran says, uh, Mr. Sinner, you think that at least you've outwitted Allah uh, by uh, not bowing to him, even if you do have to suffer in hell you stupid moron, that's exactly what Allah had in mind and same idea well, um, so uh, but it's it, it certain I mean, Gnostics would like it, right that, uh, because the wisdom of the wise of this world, though it makes sense within their own system is ultimately a lot of hogwash um, but I think this is the point that, for him, for for Paul or whoever the writer is there, right? That uh, real conversion and real faith is experiential, not based on rational argument. And again, I well, doesn't it say that uh, Paul uh, was reasoning uh, with the Bereans and others from the scriptures, proving that Jesus had to be the Messiah and so on? Uh, Not necessarily, because um, generally in the New Testament, prophecy seems to mean what it did in Qumran. Uh, It was the Pesher mode of interpretation that you had no regard for what the original meaning of it was, what the original intent was. Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I've called my son. Aha! He's predicting that uh, Jesus and his family are going to come out of Egypt. No, he's not, and any fool knows that. It's uh, absolutely obvious. If you read Hosea, he's talking about the Exodus from Egypt. Well, Matthew knew that. Uh, he, he couldn't help but know that. What he's doing is saying, ah, there was this esoteric meaning that could only become evident after the fact that it has. If you put on the glasses of Christian faith, you're going to see this in an entirely new light. It wasn't evidence. It was like seeing a new meaning in it, again, esoteric interpretation. So even that isn't a question of evidence like a modern apologist would try to give. Uh, Paul said, uh, like in Galatians, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by faith? It's receiving the spirit. Uh, and uh, that's the thing that that uh, secures conversion. Now, I think the reason he says that in in this uh, passage in First Corinthians is more about staying in the faith, but it's still the same point that uh, he figures: if you got reasoned into Christianity, and that's the basis of your faith, in other words, if it were good views that someone. Persuaded you of, well, you know, it's possible that some cynic or stoic or this is going to come along and uh, give you his spiel, and that one might make more sense to you. Sociologists of religion call this a conversion career, where you try one thing after another. Well, Paul doesn't want you doing that. And he wants you to stick with it, so he says, forget it. Don't get reasoned into it, uh, and that way you won't get reasoned out of it. Uh, You need an unshakable experience. And, of course, this is uh, fatally anti-intellectual, and uh, it's... uh because, you know, your, your experience might lead you into the grasp of Charlie Manson or Jim Jones or of, uh, uh, of uh, the Islamic uh, Jihad because it has led plenty of people to it. It's just the luck of the draw. You're playing Russian roulette uh, maybe you should say Russian Orthodox rule that I don't know, and uh, but but the, from the standpoint of wanting to keep them in the fold, that's what he's saying. James Barr said it uh, usually takes an emotional experience to get someone into fundamentalism, and it's gonna take an emotional experience to get them out of it. They weren't reasoned into it. You can't reason them out of it. it has got to be some emotional jolt. And uh, I think that's what uh, Paul, you know, whoever the Paulinist writer is here, is counting on. So uh, uh, that's, uh, you know, that doesn't always work. I have a friend out in Minneapolis, uh, Lee Salisbury. I interviewed him on Point of Iniquity years ago. He was a charismatic preacher, speaking in tongues, healing and all that. But somehow, one day, he began to uh, to take a second look at uh, the Bible and, and his beliefs, and he wound up uh, an atheist and now has philosophy clubs, discussion groups, and uh, he's an amazing guy. And so it can happen, but again, if it couldn't, there'd be no reason for for Paul's warning. He doesn't want you to think your way out of it, so he'd rather you hadn't thought your way into it. Um, You know, even C.S. Lewis, I think, uh, this is one of the things I really can't forgive the merry old apologist for. Um. In uh, his uh, essay on obstinacy of belief, he, he says you should use your best reason to decide whether or not to become a Christian. And, you know, in Mere Christianity, he makes this famous statement that one only wishes were true. I'm not asking you to become a Christian if your best reasoning is against it. But, of course, his point is, I'm here to show you that your best reasoning can accept it, right? He's saying, I'm not asking you to just uh, exile your mind, uh, put it in neutral. No, no, no. Well, you know, that's admirable. Well, in this essay, On Obstinacy and Belief, he says, once you've made the Christian commitment, you can't remain open to changing your mind, because it's like deciding to marry a spouse beforehand you could shop around as diana ross says uh y- and uh, you were right to do so and you made but now that you've made your choice uh no don't have a wandering eye spiritually uh the, the you, times passed for you to look at all the candidates you made up your mind now you got to stick with it that strikes me as grossly inappropriate for a system of belief, but it's the it's another way of getting to this uh same result that uh, first Corinthians wants to get at, and that is awfully intellectually dishonest uh, you can't really be a believer and a uh an irrational objective thinker uh Now, I've uh, said many times that I am sure there are people who have reasoned their way into Christianity uh, and uh, remain rational like the late, great Clark Pinnock. I'm not saying one cannot judge Christianity the best rational choice. Uh, that many people believe they have. You know, honest minds think differently. It's just that if you take the approach of, well, no more thinking about that for me, uh, that's really a lack of integrity. And, uh, okay. Um, (laughs) I'll get back to Stephen. I'm sorry about this. Furthermore, it says later, in verse 22, that For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. To me, this indicates that Paul's Christ lacks historicity, that the Jews needed concrete evidence of salvation, which is a stumbling block, a stumbling block for them, since Paul's Jesus apparently was not a sign to be seen, but rather, I'm sorry, but merely something that is preached and that did not happen for all to see. I gotta admit, uh Stephen, I've never thought of it that way. But uh and it could be that. I I think the this is kinda like Occam's razor. It seems to me there is a more natural interpretation that involves fewer assumptions. Uh and that is that uh it's just like in the Quran. Uh, Oh, if only his Lord would send down a sign from heaven, or the Pharisees to Jesus. We would uh, like to see a sign from you, like to to authenticate what you're saying. And Jesus isn't above doing that in some stories, right? Like the the paralytic that he heals. Uh, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And how can you presume to forgive somebody's sins? And Jesus, rather than explaining it, says, "...well, let's say, let's do a little experiment." And he says to the guy, "...get up uh, from your pallet and carry it home and walk back uh, there." And, and he does. Uh, he, how does he preface that? "...so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins," says to the guy, "...rise up, take up your mat, and walk." Well, that's given him a sign from heaven, right? Uh, so there's some inconsistency there, because elsewhere he says, I'm sorry, it's only sinners and adulterers that ask for that kind of a thing, because uh, they're looking for an excuse not to believe what I'm saying, right? That's, it's, they don't want to be convinced that I'm right. Uh, they want a cheap excuse to say, well, who knows if what he's saying is right or not. I think that's a profound insight. Um. But I, I think that's I read First Corinthians as saying that that Paul is preaching and they want to see some miracles from him to authenticate it because they will if they see him they will illogically figure that proves what uh, what he's saying. I, I think was well, it Rousseau or Voltaire. One of them said, "If I tell you I can prove that two plus two equals 5, ...by causing this ball in my hand to disappear. And I do manage to make it disappear sorry, two plus two does not equal five. All I can prove is that I can make that ball disappear or I can make it look as if it disappeared either way. But even if you did it for real, uh, you might have superpowers, but uh, two and two don't equal five. And so it would be illogical, but uh, he's saying, look, all I can do is preach uh, Christ. uh, And uh, that... uh, uh, so, uh, you know, we're not going to settle it that way. You're just going to have to believe. This does bear on mythicism, though, and I uh, haven't thought of it this way, and so I'm glad you asked this question. G.A. Wells and others have pointed out, wait a minute, and I've said this plenty of times, that uh, Paul must not have understood Jesus to have been a miracle worker because if he said, Jews seek signs, but sorry, you got to disappoint him. We preach Christ crucified. Does he, that that supposedly he means, well, if he knew Jesus did miracles, he could tell him about that, but would that have done the trick? Maybe he means they want him to do miracles. Uh, I got to think about that. That is fascinating. Oh, finally, Stephen says, this seems to have gone on a long time, but that's my fault, not Stephen's. Finally, part of the passage is slightly comedic, verses 14 through 16, because Paul sounds like Paul Lynn. No, I'm sorry, because Paul is happy he didn't baptize anyone, presumably to avoid being blamed for these people spouting some kind of nonsense or heresy. Except those two guys, Crispus and Gaius, and also Stephanus's household... But he can't remember whether he baptized anyone else. Well, there's uh, that is funny, though, and you got to ask, why is it there? And I think the idea is that the notion that he baptized... Uh, wait a minute now, let me see that again. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, he says, see, Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel... That implies somebody thought Paul wasn't a baptizer, uh, that uh, he believed in spiritual baptism like the Kimbanguist sect today in Congo. Uh, Well, uh, I baptize you in water, John the Baptist said, but the one who comes will baptize in spirit. Doesn't that mean water baptism is over for Christians? Uh, Interesting idea. Um, The... uh, so the, this text might originally have simply meant that, uh, look, uh, I didn't baptize people in my name. Uh, and But the fact that it then goes on to say, ah, except for Crispus and Gaius, I take that as an interpolation at some point where uh, somebody who uh, some faction— currently or formerly headed by Crispus and Gaius are trying to s- slip their namesakes into the line of apostolic succession. Similarly, the household of Stephanus. Let's uh, let's put that in there. But then uh, somebody added, and beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anybody. I think that's put in there as a way to stanch the flow. Somebody wanted to p- to uh, avoid having unlimited uh, lists of people whom Paul baptized, who thus would have an apostolic succession linked to him, is kind of funny, though. Okay, I hope you're doing well in Maryland. There, at least you're not in Baltimore. Um, uh, by the way, is it true they're going to change the their slogan name from Charm City, uh, just dropping the C? Okay, um, Simon Vaughn, this this will be our last one for today, Uh, I've been listening to your podcast for about a year, boy, I didn't know I had done any of them that long, Uh, I'm writing a doctoral thesis on C.S. Lewis within the Divinity Faculty of the Universe, universe, University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where incidentally your favorite scholar N.T. Wright teaches, over the course of the doctor at my own theological positions, have moved away from Lewis's to the extent that I now consider myself a deist, if not an atheist, rather than a theist. I'm also now of the opinion that Lewis arrived at his theological stance, notwithstanding its apparent logic, out of psychological rather than rational necessity... Your podcasts have been very helpful to me as I move out from under Lewis's influence and in providing an alternative to the plausibility structure I find myself living and working within. Um, I wonder, have you read uh, John Baversloss's great book C.S. Lewis and the Search for Rational Religion? I'm sure you have, but if by some freak chance you haven't, you got to read it. Last name of the author, B.E.V. E-R-S-L-U-I-S of course it's Dutch and you might also get a kick out of uh, my little book The Needle Toe Letters and uh, you can guess what that is anyway Um, I'm writing in the first place to let you know that I ordered five of your books for the university library, by way of thanks. I thought it might amuse you to know that your amazing colossal apostle now stands on the same shelf as Tom Wright's Paul and the faithfulness of God and is available to his students. Who knows, maybe the great man himself will one day happen upon it. My second reason for writing is to put to you a question for the podcast – uh, it concerns an interview you conducted with Thomas Altizer for point of inquiry some years ago. If I remember, you expressed sympathy for Altizer's theology in general, and in particular for his idea that God is not merely dead in the rhetorical sense of not existing, but had literally died on the cross, never to be resurrected. What I didn't understand was how you, a mythicist, could support the notion that God had died when you don't believe he ever lived. Not having read Altizer, I may have misconstrued the problem, but I'd be grateful for your clarification or further confusion. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, I, The thing with me and, and the great Altizer is that I am a mythicist, but as I understand it, uh, Thomas Altizer is working with the myth of it. I, I'm I'm rather sure he believes in a historical... Well, yeah, he does believe in a historical Jesus. But the way he's dealing with the myths, he understands myth and poetry and fiction to be prophetic and revelatory. Uh, he understands Blake and Hegel and... Uh, Uh, Nietzsche and many others to be on the level with uh, the biblical prophets, if not higher, and and the way he, he uses them. And so that he's talking about a kind of history of meaning, as Gordon Kaufman would say, that we use myths to frame our understanding of the world beyond mundane facts. And so he does not think there's any historical evidence that Jesus was literally God incarnate, and so that God, the transcendent God, died on the cross at Calvary. That isn't quite the the kind of uh, understanding he has. He's saying that uh, what Nietzsche said happened with the death of God really is anticipated, and therefore can be said to have happened, uh, at the cross, because there, if it was understood according to its real inner logic, as he sees it, you do have the abandonment of the transcendent God concept and its replacement with a radical incarnation of the spirit, whatever we conceive it to be, in this world of darkness. Uh, it's like the, the incarnation of the Son of God into the fallen, suffering world, that that's where the Christian mission belongs, very much like Buddhist bodhisattvas entering into the world, because he also makes a big deal of Buddhist parallel. And uh, therefore, the meaning of the myth, well, the meaning is the myth of the crucifixion, though he does believe, I'm sure, that there was a Jesus who was crucified and that gave rise to the salvation myth. Um, th- that myth includes the notion that we are saved from uh, the uh, the uh, self-righteous, abusive, uh, transcendent God of, of traditional religion. He says that uh, the... the flip side of the coin of original sin, the fall of humanity, is the fall of God. Uh, For humans to become alienated from God, from the ground of their being, as Tillich says, means that God is alienated from us. He is no longer imminent. He is transcendent. The transcendence of God, high and lifted up, ...is a way of saying that God is estranged, which, by the way, of course, is a very common um, motif of creation mythology. You find it in a whole bunch of African religions that the sky god no longer has dealings with humans. He's enraged and disgusted with us because of some kind of altercation at the beginning of time. Well, yeah, uh, Altizer is saying that is implicit in the, the fall story in the Bible... Uh, And, I mean, he doesn't have the copyright on it, but he's taken his swing at it, right? This is the way it seems to him. And I like that a lot because, to me... Nietzsche's madman uh, story in the Gay Science is just determinative. That really explains to me what happened with religion and how we evolved beyond it, theism anyway, and uh, and the, the, the imposing that on the crucifixion as a framework of interpretation is is very powerful. There are obviously many other interpretations of Eden, the Fall, and and the Cross. Of course, right? I'm not arguing for any orthodoxy, but that is how I uh, agree with Altizer, who, in for my money, is the greatest theologian of our time, unquestionably. The guy is a mystic. He's had visions. He's had religious experiences of various kinds. He knows the whole history of philosophy, theology, the Bible, comparative religion. Uh, Altizer is certainly the greatest theologian. I'm almost tempted to say the only theologian today because so many of them are just political hacks uh, using religious language to further their uh, political agendas, but not Altizer. So he's he's great. I'm a big, big Altizer fan. Okay. Mm yeah, better get going. I gotta do some more work on holy fable, which uh sure well Ah oh, now here's here's one more I think I'll uh do uh, this is tempting. But who said this? Where's the name? I think I've lost it. Oh well. Ah, let's see. Uh, I think the Bible doesn't say God is all fill-in-the-blank the the way Christians do, uh, but this is what they believe. Christians have assigned the following attributes to God. God is eternal. God is infinite. God is self-sufficient and self-existent. God is omnipresent, present everywhere. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. God is omniscient, all-knowing. God is unchanging or immutable, and so much more. Let's assume Christians are right about his attributes and start with the list above. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and never-changing. Therefore, he knows everything and will ever do forever. And he can never change his, quote, mind, I think that's interesting you put that in quotes. I think you're right. What's done is done. Plus, although it's not in the list above, we can assume he's perfect. At least that's what I remember they told me in church and Sunday school. So just with those attributes, all the decisions are made for him. All the perfect decisions have already been made. Uh, There, I'm glad you put perfect in there. I'll get back to that in a second. There's nothing for him to do but execute them. So he is essentially just an actor in a play reading his lines. You could say that if you were a Christian, that the lines were all written by him, but were they? He has come up with the perfect list of tasks and cannot change them. He is bound by his perfection to choose only one path. God knows that you are going to pray and what his answer will be before any of it happens. And if he knows everything he will ever do, why does he even need to be there? He may as well be a computer with a set of instructions. He never needs to make any decisions because they are all already made. He can never change his mind because that would show that He's imperfect in his decision-making. He's in a straitjacket of eternal actions. I can't think of anything much more boring for myself than knowing everything I would ever do for my whole life, and that's short. Imagine knowing everything for everyone forever. You could never enjoy a movie with a twist because you've already seen it. Your whole life is a movie you've already seen. I contend that even if there was a God, he wouldn't have these attributes. And furthermore, I contend that the people giving him these attributes are short-sighted and don't think of the philosophical conundrums they induce. But when God doesn't reveal himself, he's left it to us to assign him attributes. Why should we cut him short? We can make him all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful. Why leave room for some other God to come in and overtake him? Like all evolution, we have gone through all the smaller gods who simply controlled the weather and stars and seas and wound up with a capital G, capital O, capital D god who can do it all. It reminds me of a line in This Is Spinal Tap talking about the blackness of their album cover. Nigel Tufnell says, "'It's like, how much more black could this be?' And the answer is none." none more black. I've always liked that, too. Uh, I think you're right. Perfection. Um, infinite perfection. This implies... No, I know you're going to say it doesn't have to imply, but this, the very conceptuality that's being applied to God by theologians based on Plato and Aristotle requires this interpretation. This is what they mean by saying God is infinitely perfect. God is pure act. God has no potential that he has not yet realized. And that means God is changeless. And God is out out of time, outside of time, which is what eternity is supposed to mean, not just an infinite duration of time. But he is timeless. That implies God does not act, cannot act because he can't do one thing before another or after another. He cannot be potentially a creator and then create, which will make him an actual creator. He can't be potentially angry at sin and then sees Sodom and Gomorrah and fulfills that potential by becoming actually peeved at him. No, uh, God is outside of time, so there can be no sequential action or thought. Um... Spinoza understood this. He said that all in the time frame in which we inhabit, which we inhabit, uh, is uh, is mechanistically uh, determined by the nature and being of God, because everything has God as its underlying nature. Everything is a manifestation of God. Uh, It must be because God is the cause of everything. And therefore, everything is a kind of an unfolding implication of God. It goes back to the Stoics also. All right. um, Now, why do things happen as they must because of the inevitable logical implications of the nature of God we begin to sense this when we say well God would never do anything wrong it's not that he's not powerful enough to do it oh god is limited he couldn't sin it's not a question of that it's uh, that's simply never going to happen given the nature of God well all the things that don't happen could never happen because of the nature of God. It must happen because of the immutable, timeless nature of God. Everything that happens must happen. Uh, but in God's frame of reference, there is no sequence. That uh, the, the notion that theres is, that is—and I'm switching over to Shankara, but I think it fits— the The appearance of sequence and cause and effect is a result of the limiting conditions of illusory, finite existence, which is sort of like a dream. Uh, it is not ultimately real, it's an illusion. And uh, so the the uh, notion that there is a God who is a person, Zeus, Brahma, Jehovah, that is part of the illusion. But if you really want to know what's going on, there is Satchitananda, Being, Consciousness, Bliss. Uh, And if one could shake off, as uh, the Kansas song says, rise above this illusion, one would not exactly see that is true, but be that truth. Because the limitation of apparent individual consciousness would fall away, and I think that the minute Anselm and all these guys embraced uh, Augustine and so on embraced Greek thought, uh, this is what they inherited uh, if, if when you and why did they do that? Well, because they got the idea from the Greeks of what divine perfection would be and in contrast with it the the god who gets mad and gets happy and changes his mind and so forth uh, in in the the bible Begins to seem like a mythical entity, which is what he is, right? And you begin to think, well, no, uh, the truth about the God of the Bible is all of this stuff that Plato and Aristotle said. No, I think you've just substituted a different God, as Pascal saw later. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not the God of the philosophers. There is this great irony in uh, Christian apologists using these philosophical arguments uh, for the existence of God. Insofar as they succeed, they are debunking the Bible, which has, quote, the living God, unquote, that is the mythological God, the God of mythology. Uh, So, yeah, I think that it is suicidal. John Warwick Montgomery did a book called The Suicide of Christian Theology. He was talking about Altizer and others, but I think traditional Greek-influenced theology is suicidal, and that has something to do with the death of God. Well, I guess i still got a little air left in my lungs. David Benn says, I would like to hear your analysis of the evangelical claims about the mark of the beast and the cashless society. I certainly don't consider the eventuality of a cashless system to be a fulfillment of prophecy or even an impressive prediction. I am, however, curious to know what contemporary influences inspired such predictions and how modern Christians are wrong. Um, I uh, think that the main motive is to find something in our day that would seem to fit, even by way of general analogy, a uh, prediction from Revelation. And this is as close as they can think of. I think that's really it. And yet there is a profundity in what they're saying. In that, um, and this I think Jacob Neusner would say about the whole Bible, and many Christian theologians say it about the book of Revelation, what these, these sacred stories, prophecies, etc. do, and why people continue to read them, is that they paint certain pictures that, uh, real- that, against which reality in any particular time can be measured you know, discerning the signs of the times, uh, the Gospels say. If you found, and of course this is at issue with the NSA and compiling all this data about everybody, if you found that uh, you were forced to give the government all information and have some tracking chip with your financial and medical history in it and all that so that the government could... Uh, find out who you voted for and cut you off and so on. Would that be the literal referent that uh, the seer of Revelation had in view? No, that doesn't make any difference. That would be interesting, but really irrelevant. Like, did Gene Dixon predict JFK's death? No, the point is, if you saw this happening, you would inevitably think of the mark of the beast in Revelation, and uh, the true sinister dimension of it would become apparent. Uh, and so these these uh, myths and predictions are handy in terms of providing these paradigms to enable us to discern the signs of the times. Uh, So, uh, you know, I don't know that they have all that in mind, but they do come to a similar realization by being suspicious of certain things. I think so-and-so's getting a little too much power. Others would point to uh, George Orwell's big brother in 1984. That'd be just as good. That's just as powerful. But uh, that's the function of it. Or um, the society in uh, Brave New World. Oh, boy, does that have a lot to say to us, where people are locked into their video games and their drugs and become a docile herd of sheep. Uh, Oh, boy, I'd say that's an apocalyptic prophecy well worth heeding, too. Uh, okay uh, David uh, says lastly have you or do you know of any work that offers a higher critical analysis of biblical prophecy I'd love a resource that explains the historical and cultural context of each prophecy and an explanation of how modern interpretations of prophecies fail um. let me uh, uh, grab a book off the shelf here I think you you might really enjoy a book called Bible Prophecy, Failure or Fulfillment by Tim Callahan. And uh, this is... uh let me just read you the back. A completely different kind of book about biblical prophecy. Many bestsellers have been written about Bible prophecy and their influence is sure to increase as the millennium approaches. <laughs> Can the Bible be used like a crystal ball to predict the future? How accurate were the biblical prophets? Are modern events fulfillment of things described in the book of Revelation? What compelling messages did the ancient prophets deliver to their contemporaries that are still relevant today? Um, and uh, oh let me just read you the uh, the uh, titles um, without presupposition how to test a biblical prophecy who wrote the Bible how the Bible was, organ- was written and organized how to think about the Bible an introduction to the prophetic books Behold, the days are coming, the prophets of the Assyrian period. Prophecy or false prophecy, prophets of the Chaldean period. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do Old Testament prophecies foretell the life of Jesus? From prophecy to catastrophe, the post-exilic prophets and the growth of prophetic literature. Head of gold, feet of clay, the book of Daniel. The Last Days, Apocalyptic Writings of the New Testament. The End of the World, the Rapture, and the Second Coming. Black Helicopters, Hong Kong Gurkhas, and Other Signs of the New World Order, Secular Conspiracy Theories. Uh, This, uh, I think, might be just what you're looking for. Again, uh, it's... uh, Tim Callahan, of course, C A L L A H A N, Bible Prophecy, Failure or Fulfillment. Let me remind everybody that prophecy is P R O P H E C Y, not S Y. I see this confusion all the time. Uh, I guess language evolves, you can say what you want, but technically, for what that's worth, uh, prophecy is a noun with the C prophesy with an S is a verb. And that's what you're looking for if you use the the uh, slang word prophesize. Uh, that one is uh, that's being used so often. I suspect that'll be in the dictionary eventually. But technically if you're pretending to scholarly prose, remember prophecy, the noun is with a C. Prophesy the verb is with an S. And this is Bible Prophecy, Failure or Fulfillment by Tim Callahan. I recommend it. It Sounds like a real goodie. Okay, that's going to be it for today. I will, however, of course you could have made an infallible prophecy about this one. Uh, We can use your help paying the bills around Chateau Geek. Uh, If you can help, uh, please do. If you can't, don't worry about it. I will see you soon on another exciting episode of The Bible Geek. (laughs) The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price, and produced by John Felix and Sergeon Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvender.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com. And be sure to rate and review the Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Bible Geek. I'm Tornet. Long on the firing Oh so you'd better pray that's from my that own Bible. And look up to the stars when they shine.